I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. It's been one year since angry supporters of President Donald Trump stormed the U.S. Capitol in an attempt to overturn the 2020 presidential election results. They failed, but they did tremendous damage. For lawmakers who were at the Capitol that day and had to flee for their lives, the emotional trauma lingers. So does the threat to American democracy, as Republicans continue to insist on the big lie that Trump won the election, pass voter suppression laws, and try to seize control of election boards. Many people who participate in the violence are doubling down in their actions, even as they face federal prosecutions. In fact, some of them are running for future political office. And for politics in the blue state of California, Trump's influence continues to dominate the state Republican Party. While the insurrection has fallen off the radar for many Americans, yes, there's been a distracting thing called the pandemic, the fallout of the insurrection is still being assessed. The Department of Justice and a House committee continue their expansive investigations as they consider prosecuting those responsible and involved. Today, I'm joined by Washington correspondent Tal Copen, investigative reporter Matthias Gaffney, and Chronicle senior political writer Joe Garofoli, who's also the host of the It's All Political podcast, which is becoming a part of Fifth Emission in a few weeks. Each of them has written a piece that gives a local lens to where we are now, one year later. Tal, Joe, and Matthias, thanks for being here. Let's start with this. Do you think the country is reckoning with the fallout of what happened on January 6, 2021. Joe, what do you think? No. I think everyone has gone to their partisan corners as they do to uh, just about everything else that happens in this country. And uh, you can look no further than how everyone is uh, you know, marking the day. Uh, Democrats are largely acknowledging it in many different ways, and Republicans are largely blowing it off. And I'm, I'm sure Tall has a lot more to say on that. You know, I managed to interview almost every member of Congress who represents the Bay Area or California uh, in the Senate and sort of collected their reflections. And Senator Alex Padilla may have said it best. He said, it's been a year already, but it's only been a year. And, you know, the there's so many levels on which you could try to process the question you just asked about reckoning with what happened. I mean, on one level, I spoke with many of our lawmakers about the very emotional process that they're going through of processing the trauma of that day. And it was traumatic. I mean, several of them, many of them were in their respective chambers when the insurrectionists breached the Capitol. They were being evacuated by Capitol Police with the insurrectionists right there. I mean, at the House, they had to use deadly force to hold the doors of the House uh, from the rioters. And you know, the, everyone processes trauma in their own way, uh, but it's clear that some of them are still quite emotional about this. And in some ways, the past year has almost made it worse. And seeing, to, to Joe's point and to sort of the, the broader political level of the question you asked, seeing how for political reasons there are swaths of conservatives in the Republican Party who are downplaying the very serious events of that day because of their own political fortunes and because it, you know, continues to be a priority of former President Trump to make false claims uh, about, you know, the integrity of the election. And many of them don't want to defy him. And so all of that together makes 
you know, it's an anniversary, but for many of them, it's still very much an ongoing thing. Matthias, what about you? Yeah, you know, um, has it been a year? It has. <laughs> Time is kind of um, a, a different construct these days. But, um, you know, I looked at the four Bay Area residents who got caught up in the um, attacks and where their court cases were and so and so on. And I, I was struck by one of them who um, is a uh, Santa Rosa resident who's actually one of the most recent arrests made almost a year after it happened. Um, he was arrested in early December and literally two days before he was arrested, he was posting on his Twitter account, incredibly inflammatory tweets. And throughout the year with all these headlines of arrests from this event, he's still, you know, showing no signs of regret or change of heart and only doubling down on kind of um, the same uh, takes that he had prior to January 6th. Joe, speaking of Trump supporters doubling down, what does this mean for the broader political landscape in the state? You wrote about how this event affected California Republicans. Is aligning with Trump still a political strategy? Well, yeah, it's a it's a failed political strategy. And, it, and it, we see no sign that California Republicans are going to do anything else. Um, many of them, even in a state where two-thirds of the voters voted against Trump, uh, and, and and an equal number remain uh, repulsed by him at some level politically. Many California Republicans, uh, except for the uh, the most conservative ones, are in sort of a no no person's land. They're they're too afraid to speak out against them mm-hmm. for fear of alienating the Republican base, and they're too afraid to embrace him at the risk of alienating most California voters. Now, this is supposed to be, by all predictions, a wave year for Republicans nationally. If uh, if that wave is going to come to California, California Republicans are going to have to push back on, on Trump at some level, or else uh, they're going to be doomed to remain a minority party here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you mentioned it's a failed political strategy. I think that's true in California, but I think it's important for Californians to recognize that's not true in lots of other parts of the country. And I think that's part of why we see this this issue. And, you know, you talk about even in California, I thought it was really fascinating how, you know, obviously Gavin Newsom romped in the recall. But the next choice candidate by far and away was the Trumpiest candidate on the ballot in Larry Elder. And what you see is, yes, Republicans are possibly increasingly a minority party in California, but the ones that are left are increasingly Trump. And it creates a really difficult situation for California Republicans where if they if they represent a very red district, which some of them do, including Kevin McCarthy, he, he represents a very conservative district, his voters are not going to look like the state of California. They are going to look a lot like the Trumpy voters, you know, across the country. And so you do see this this issue in the Republican Party. And many of the lawmakers I spoke to for my piece lament this because many of them have served for decades. They know their Republican colleagues really well. They know their families. They said they know their children. They've been friends for years. And there's a real breakdown now of some of those relationships because there's this lack of trust. And they many of them say, you know, I talk to them in private and they're like, yeah, you know, eh, I don't really believe it. That. But what matters is what they do in public. And right now, to be in that party, most of the time, you've got to fall in line. 
And I also want to talk about consequences, too. I mean, Tal, you spoke to Bay Area lawmakers about the trauma and how they're still reliving the events of that day. How do they feel about, you know, the investigation that's underway right now with the DOJ? I know there's a House committee looking at it. Do they feel like our government is doing enough? Yeah, well, I'll I'll let Matias speak to some of the court cases since he's been digging into them. But in terms of the delegation with the, and what Congress is doing, actually, uh, some of our members are sort of directly involved in that process, including uh, San Jose Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, who is on the select committee that's investigating the events of January 6th. And they have not released all their findings yet. She described to me what we've learned about that day as chilling, you know, the more we uncover uh, many of the lawmakers I spoke to through their various committees. We have a few in um, Congresswoman Jackie Spear and Eric Swalwell, who serve on the Intelligence Committee. Uh, Swalwell also serves on the Judiciary Committee. They all feel a very strong need to work to preserve democracy uh, mm-hmm. going forward and, you know, to get to the bottom of what happened. And for, men- for many, if not all of them, I mean, they point the finger squarely at Donald Trump for sort of inciting all of this, but they still want to know what the extent of involvement of other members of Congress were in coordinating with the organizers of the rally that preceded the storming of the Capitol. They're, they they really do feel that there are a lot of unanswered questions that they would like to see aired in public at the end of this investigation. And Matias, with the people that were charged with these crimes, you know, what do we know about the consequences they're facing? And have more details been revealed about their motivations potentially, you know, to be a part of the insurrection. Yeah. So, you know, we have four uh, Bay Area residents who have been charged uh, with the January 6th uh, storming of the Capitol in one one respect or another. Uh, They have a variety of cases, um, but they all are incredibly diehard Trump fans. Um, They have supported them before. They Mm -hmm. supported them after. As far as, you know, repercussions to them yet it, it runs a gamut the the cases are um some very new some old one uh gilroy woman has taken a plea deal so she's going to plead guilty to one of her counts and she uh is getting sentenced next month and faces you know uh, i believe it's six months in prison then there's you know a santa rosa man who literally just got arrested early december uh had been free the entire time he brought his teenage son there to uh the capital on January 6th and he, his case is just starting. And then there's um, another individual from Mill Valley who authorities believe has uh, fled to Belarus. I just spoke to the attorney of um, a San Francisco man who uh, is in the midst of his court thing. He's been fighting court officials because he refuses to wear a mask. When he was arrested, he chewed off five masks um, as he was being arrested. And that case is ongoing. In, in many ways, the court process and adjudication of all these cases in the barrier folks are almost as chaotic as the events on January 6th. I mean, it's just been wild. More with Matthias Gaffney, Tal Copen, and Joe Garofoli after a quick break. We'll discuss how the violence of the insurrection has changed civic life and how Trump's legacy has impacted the political climate, even in blue California. We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. I've read that there are dozens of people who played a role in the insurrection who are now running for elected office. 
how should we even begin to think about this, that the insurrection has served as a political springboard? Is this Trump's legacy or something else? Tal Copen, what do you think? You know, the sort of chicken or egg question of is Trump a symptom? You know, is Trump the the source? I think the answer is probably a bit of both. You have to hope that our democracy is stronger than attempts to subvert it. And certainly, you know, there were notes of optimism in my conversations that even after the insurrection that night, Congress came back into session, you know, the the rubble all around them and all, and they certified the peaceful transfer of power. The institutions stood, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's important to remember that. And it's also important to remember that it's these things aren't givens that, you know, we as Americans have to continue to stand up for what we believe in, including if we believe in democracy. Joe, what about you? What do you make of the long term impact of this huge event of political violence? Well, I, one thing I, I wanted to weigh in because sort of tangentially on that was, you know, the, the these polls have come out recently where. of Republicans saying, you know, acting out violently towards the government is acceptable. And I think it was 23% of Democrats. That is a really high number. Now, we we know how the country was founded on, you know, revolting and against a a tyrannical uh, government. But still, in this day and age, it's it's really alarming. And there's also been an an enormous spike that was reported the other day uh, in death threats against lawmakers. We have to untangle how much of this is part of the... uh, uh, the pandemic where we're not seeing each other. And so it's easier to make these threats online and and per- and and, uh, and it's it's creating a very, very toxic atmosphere. and uh, and and it, you know polls also show that a lot of Americans are concerned about the uh, the threat of violence that has uh, that we saw uh, a year ago at continuing. Mm-hmm. Matthias, Does your reporting also reveal, I mean, talking about just sort of this process long year being kind of slow moving around this investigation, is it revealing that, you know, accountability, serving accountability to people who played a role in that day is just really hard and complex? Um, I think so. Um, To a large extent, there's over 700 people who've been charged. Just simply solving these crimes, if you will, um, has been largely dealing with video, surveillance video, social media video. Um, So that's one thing that's been very um, time-consuming for law enforcement. Proving the cases once it reaches the court will be another issue that they're coming to. A lot of these cases, you know, they slowly build them up. And this is kind of uncharted territory, right, legally speaking, uh, prosecuting these crimes. So it'll be interesting if, you know, for all we know that a lot of people will start taking deals and they don't want to go to court, but I'm sure some of these will reach the court. So I think that's kind of the next step on the legal end. It'll be very interesting to see some of these cases and how they move forward and First Amendment issues. And, you know, you got a lot of different unprecedented legal arguments that that um, will be made in the next year or two. You know, there's just so much to say about the damage of this event, everything from $30 million worth of physical damage to the actual building to, you know, the the emotional trauma of all of this. And that's not even talking about the stain on our democracy. So what do you all kind of make of this? Has this changed the way you approach your own work and reporting uh, for Joe, for you, and thinking about California politics? Yeah, it's a question that kind of hovers above 
you know, a lot of conversations that I have, particularly with Republicans. Um, I, I don't feel in any greater danger personally. We're, you know, 3,000 miles away from where it happened. But that specter of violence, mm. I think that the, the message that's still lingering out there is um, if there's if violence has become a, a greater option uh, for, for many people where we should be you know, talking this out, protesting in nonviolent ways. That's the, the great history in this country. But many people are resorting to violence now or thinking about it at least or threatening it. You know, we're seeing the trickle-down effect of this also, where, you know, over the last year, we've seen an increasing number of, you know, acts of violence and uh, at, at school board meetings and local meetings, where it's, where it's you know, that's it's the copycat effect that we see too often in this country. And that is really, really scary. And it's, it's discouraging people, good people, potentially good people, from, from being public servants. Uh, we're seeing uh, acts of violence against... Uh, people who worked as election monitors and and volunteers, and it's it's harder and harder to recruit people for those positions. What about for you, Matthias? I know you do investigative reporting across many different kinds of topics, but has this particular event sort of changed the way you approach your work? Yeah, um, I mean, clearly Joe and Tall are you know knee deep in the politics angle, um, but I just you know I I have you know you have these landmark moments in your life that you will always remember where you're at and it was you know it was eye-opening it was just a jaw-dropping moment in this country's history you grow up with america on this pedestal of the peaceful transfer of power so it's just like it was just like a slap to the face of like everything you kind of grew up with um seeing in front of you so as far as it relates to my job it opened my mind to frankly anything's possible Whereas there's, there was almost like mm-hmm. an idea that certain things were off limits in this country because, you know, this history of democracy and whatnot. And, and I, I'm a little more skeptical of that. And I, I think that's bled into my reporting a little bit. It's just hit me in a, a lot of real ways, maybe not as much with um, my colleagues um, work wise, but um, it's just it was a, you know, a life changing moment, I think. And for you, Tal, how did the insurrection impact the way you think or approach your work? It's an interesting question. It has gotten harder, I think, uh, to get Republicans sometimes to give you the time of day in in Washington if they don't see you as a as an outlet, perhaps that they don't want to talk to. That's not universal by any means, and there are a lot of them that still will. But you see these sort of trend lines over time, you know. It's tricky for journalists, I think, to stand on the side of democracy, which we all as Americans should be, when there are others who are sort of weaponizing some of these political fights in ways that then make it look like we as journalists are picking sides when when we're not. We're, we're picking the side of democracy and that's it. Uh, but because political debates have kind of swirled in the directions they've swirled, it's it's tricky because we as journalists don't want to wade into political fights, but there are, you know, fundamental American values that are they're sort of unquestionable and we're on the side of truth. And there are many out there that are spreading falsehoods at this moment. And again, it can look like we're picking sides when we're standing on the side of truth. And so I think, that, you know, there's just a continued need to be thoughtful and have that clarity of, you know, we are for truth. We are for democracy. 
while not wading into perhaps political battles that that swirl around some of those questions. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I do wonder how we will be talking about this a year from now. And I love what Tal had to say about how it's also just changed what how we think about our own profession as journalists. Thank you all for sharing your perspective with me today. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Tal Copin is The Chronicle's Washington correspondent. Matthias Gaffney is an investigative reporter. And Joe Garofoli is a senior political writer and the host of It's All Political, which will soon join the Fifth Emission podcast family. You can read all their pieces about the Capitol insurrection. They're online at sfchronicle.com and on the Chronicle app. Thanks to King Kaufman for producing this episode. Thanks to you for listening. 